attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week on the podcast, as promised, a special double feature family edition Today's guest, Marty Salzman, and Thursday's guest, David Salzman, his son. That's right, the Salzman boys came and sat down with me this summer. We did some, uh, we did some storytelling on the microphones. First time I'd gotten to meet Marty, and I know he was at camp a long time. So it was uh, nice to meet him, and then, of course, David and I have had a long, long time at camp together. So it was a pleasure to sit down with him. You're going to love the stories. Uh, before we get to that, a little housekeeping. First and foremost... It's the holiday season. If you haven't noticed from the musical choices here on the podcast, uh, certainly you've noticed from the retail stores filled with things in their windows. And you're probably out gift shopping. So if you have not gotten a gift yet, if you have someone you need a last minute gift yet or someone who's just too hard to buy for, let me suggest to you that a great gift that could last forever is a commemorative brick from the Camp Ojibwe History Project. That's right. You could have an opportunity to not only purchase a brick for yourself or a loved one or a cabin mate, a teammate, a counselor you loved, a camper you loved, put it right there at the Collegiate Week bench to last forever. Not only that, great gift to give, but also that sale helps further the efforts of the Camp Ojibwe History Project. And odds are, if you're listening to this, then you probably actually care about the efforts of the Camp Ojibwe History Project and would like to help further them. So, if you want to pick up your brick in time for the holidays, head over to campojibahistory.org. You'll see the button right on the homepage. Click right there. Get your commemorative brick now. Great time to do it. We'd love to uh, put a few more bricks in the ground for this holiday season. Also, while we're at it, you should have put it in your calendar by now, but May 6th, 2017, OJ90. That's right, the 90th celebration. Coming up in May... Tickets are going to go on sale next month, but go ahead and put it in your calendar. You probably received a save the date email this week. If you did not, let me know. Send me your email address if you want to get in the know so you can keep up with all the new information as it comes out about the OJ90 party. Okay, that'll do it. Let's get going. Here we go. Marty Salzman on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir uh, and First and foremost, for the record, please state your name and years at camp. Uh, my name is Marty Salzman. And I started in 1955, and my last year was 1970. Excellent. So how did you first come to know about Camp Ojibwa? 
Um, I think my parents came up here for postseason, and then my brother went here in the late 40s for a couple of years. And what's his name? Jerry. Ah, excellent. So was there a typical camp call? Did Al come to the house and uh, sell you on camp? I think he did. You know, it was a long time ago. It's sure. tough to remember. <laughs> Certainly. Now, did your, uh, you said you had family there. Did you already have a family relationship with the Schwartzes, or were they just people in the community that you knew? Uh, my, well, my brother went here, so my parents knew Al from that connection. Gotcha. And just to uh, clarify for those listening at home, uh, your son is also a person who, who will be a big person at camp. Uh, and who is that? Uh, my son is David. And he uh, outlasted me by another 16 years, I think, because he's now the camp doctor. That is correct. He's, he's aligned himself perfectly to keep coming back every year. Right. <laughs> uh, so we're here at camp. Uh, it's rare that these get recorded here at camp, so that's a nice bonus. Uh, what brought you to camp? Uh, two things brought me to camp. Uh, one was David was coming up this week as camp doctor. Actually, three things. Um, the second thing was I was hoping to see Louis Mager because mm. I heard last week that he was here, and I really wanted to see him because I haven't seen him in a long time. And the third thing is it's sort of a bucket list mm. to come back. When was the last time you were here? Uh, David said 2002. It was last year as a waterfront director, oh. I think. Okay. Wow. That's a big layoff. Yeah. <laughs> so have things changed? A little. Mm. Not much. There, there was a fellow many years ago, a guy named Jerry Walenka, who came up to visit camp, and he walked up the road, and he turned to me and he said, it's just like going to town on a Sunday to get the Sunday newspaper and coming back, and nothing changes. Mm. And there's a few little changes. The, there's shutters on the cabin <laughs> sure. uh, uh, front windows and the flower boxes are hung instead of sitting on the ground. Um, you know, just small things yeah. that, that are changed, but camp is still camp. Yeah. It's really amazing working on this project. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of photos from all various ages and how, how little everything has changed, but, and then how many changes have been little, you know, like you said, whether it's the flower boxes moving a little here and there. We expanded the mess hall and the rec hall, but most guys don't even realize that when they're here, even right. older guys and stuff like well, that. Well, I wish I would have had a shot at the mess hall when I was when I was younger because it would have <laughs> been a pop-up for me. <laughs> uh, so you come to camp. Now tell me, you come in 55 as a camper. What's the first thing you remember about Camp Ojibwa? Um, You know, I was pretty young. I, I remember very little. I remember... Mm. Uh, one or two things. I remember going to cabin four mm-hmm. and finding out that one of my cabin mates was a guy named Bernard Barnard. <laughs> and I shared the train ride up with him. And it was probably the worst 12 hours I ever spent in my life. <laughs> so I got to spend the whole summer with him, too. Nice. Lucky you. <laughs> but um, it was a great cabin. We made a lot of friends, mm-hmm. lifelong friends. Um, I still remember some of the people I was in cabin four with, uh, Alex Falcon, Ronnie Brody, I think was, or maybe Ronnie and I, I, I can't remember if Ronnie and I started in 55 or we met together in cabin six mm. in 56, but we stayed best friends all through camp. Nice. 
And um, it was, I had great counselors, trying to remember who, Barry Kirschenbaum and Paul Keeshan. Ah. And it Paul was, was just on the show. Uh, well, oh, yeah? His, his episode was just played. I interviewed him a couple months ago at his home in, uh, in Arizona. Um, so it was, it was a good year. The only other thing I really remember about it, you know, when you're that age, you don't remember very much. Sure. But I remember losing Collegial Week by a point. Whoa, okay. <laughs> uh, Mickey Schwartz was my coach. Okay. And they took a point off for a bad lineup. Oh. And, and <laughs> we lost the you. week. Wow. <laughs> I don't think they were going to let Mickey win. Well, Anyways. I, I was going to say, I don't think Mickey ever won, right? No. He, uh, he never did well on stunt night or song night because I think it was a way to sort of control the uh, overall score. <laughs> Balance out those Schwartz points, if you yeah. will. That's funny. So how, how many years were you a camper? Uh, through 61. Okay, so six full se- six years, seven well, I seasons, went, I guess. I, can, I went cabin four, six, eight, ten. That's four years, and then three years in cabin 13. Gotcha. Um, and, of course, in those days, you would you would definitely spend two years in 13, and sometimes some guys would spend three years in there. Yeah. What's the – the kids today uh, don't have an idea of what that felt like. I mean, one of the aspects, you know, we separated out, we changed the dad's lodge into cabin 14, so that, that age group got separated. And partially because of the times, because now, or even 20 years ago, getting a 16-year-old to come back to camp was a little tougher. There were a lot more – I'm going to say a lot more, but there were there were different appealing things to stay home for. Right. Um, so over the years, it had gotten tougher, and we changed the program to do that. But I think one of the benefits we lose is having those different age groups in the cabin together to sort of teach each other the way. Um, so tell me a little bit about your experience in 13. Um, I had a great time in cabin 13. I, the first year, I was the youngest person there, but I was a good athlete, so I could compete with... I was 14. But I could compete with anybody in those days. The counselors were fabulous, Sandy Maravitz and Lee Schneidman. Hmm. And there was always a third counselor, but he always was sort of in the background. Gotcha. Uh, Bill Adair, I think, was in there one year. Um, and I loved, I loved them both, really. They, they taught me a lot. Sandy was terrific. In fact, I was a counselor in Cabin 13 one year with Sandy. Hmm. And... Um, it was, we always had good groups. We had good athletes, we had bad athletes, but people got along really well. Yeah. Um, my, my buddy Ronnie Brody and I shared a bunk for the first two years, and the third year we were in the big four. Um, nice. And it, it was, you know, it was just a great year. We always seemed to get along and do things together. And you know, we were the best athletes at the time, so it was always fun playing ball. Yeah, of course. And you're there at a pretty special time. Uh, that, that period of time is, you know, guys like Denny and Elliot are first coming to camp. George Sachs is, is a few years in. I mean, all throughout those mid-50s to yeah. early 60s. So, uh, and a lot of the guys who are now the boys of summer, or the old-timers as we lovingly call them, who come up. So there's a big group of guys that end up having long, long-term relationships with camp. Yeah, I, I th- most of my friends are from my relationships at camp. Mm. Um, Elliot started, a, Elliot was always a year behind me or a half a year until we got to Kevin 13. Uh, George Sachs was a year ahead of me. Mm. But George and I spent two years, I think, in Cabin 13 together. And when I got on the staff, 
uh, George and I became really close. Mm. Uh, George was a camp manager for a year. He was a program director for a year. <laughs> and I think the year he was program director, I was waterfront director. So uh, we spent a lot of time together. Okay. Probably went out every night, too. Sure, of course. Because we didn't have any kids. <laughs> nice. And, and um, you know, I, my friends, I still play. I play bridge with Steve Lewis every month. Uh yeah, he and I went to camp together. I played with Chucky Alexander. Chucky was a camper, I think. And the old timers, as you call them, sure. a lot of them were my campers. Mm. They're a couple of years younger than me. Nice. Except that I don't know who else comes up, but well, Bernie's a little older than you. Bernie's right? older than me, but George maybe. George uh, and I went started in cabin six together, I yeah. think. And you've already mentioned Wanks and Ron Brody, and that also uh, typically, well, it was Diz Nitzkin, of course, was part of that. Dizzy was about two years older than me. And nowadays, Rafi and Feldman, they're part of that. Right. Barry was, no, Steve was my camper. His older brother was mm. my camper in Cabin 7. I saw a great picture. I, met, I had never met Steve, and I was uh, seeing Barry in Chicago, and I went to his office, and Steve was there. And he said, oh, it's nice to meet you, your camp guy. Let me show you a great picture. And it's a picture from post-camp of Steve mooning out the door of Cabin 4. Yeah. Just white as can be, <laughs> bare-ass to the world. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, his, yeah, like his parents came up. There was a group of parents, uh, old time, really old-timers, who mm-hmm. used to come up every year for postseason. Monty Feldman, Orks Lieberman, uh, Red Shaps. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else. And all of their kids were in my cabin in Cabin 7 one year. Oh, wow. And it was probably the single best cabin I ever had. Very nice. Now, in those days, would you stay for postseason as well? I There were a number of years I stayed for postseason, probably five or six or seven, hmm. when I was on staff, and I would run the waterfront and just sort of enjoy myself for yeah. a week or two before I had to go back to school. Yeah, it's really great. I, I had never... Stayed for postseason until a few years ago, and when I, the first time I did, within the first day, I was like, why have I never done this? This right. is fantastic. The only negative was at the end, you had to put away the camp. <laughs> sure. So you had to carry all the rowboats and canoes into the shower house, mm-hmm. and, it was a lot, and it was a lot of work. A lot of work on that last couple of days. <laughs> so we touched on something yesterday, you and I talking before we started recording, and uh, in spirit of talking about Cabin 13, and that is that in the, in the old days there was a mayor of Cabin 13. Yes. Can you explain what that was a little bit? Um, the uh, idea was that the cabin elected a mayor, and the mayor was the person to whom the, the people in the cabin went to if there was something to talk about, rather than going directly to the counselors. Mm. So the mayor was sort of an intermediary and a peacekeeper. When he saw, the counselors always felt that the kids should deal with each other and work out their own problems, and mm. that they would stay in the background unless it was absolutely necessary. And it was a it was a huge honor to be elected mayor. Yeah, I can certainly imagine. Um, and I assume it's voted on just within Cabin 13? Yes, just Cabin 13. And, you know, it was a big honor, and most of the time it was a pretty easy job because most of the kids were good kids. Sure. And, you know, I can't remember that I ever had, a, a, you know, knockdown, drag-out uh, problems. Everybody right. seemed to get along pretty well. I mean, the biggest problem was... Every once in a while, somebody didn't want to go to an activity, uh, and you had to get them out of the cabin. 
Um, but other than that, it was it was a you know it was a big honor. Yeah. To be elected the mayor. And how does being the mayor compare or contrast with being the chief of the Braves? Well, the chief is elected. I think the chief was elected by all the Braves. Mm-hmm. That's so, certainly how we do it now. So, yeah. you know, you had all the kids who were over twelve have the election, mm. and it was it was a pretty big deal in those days to be chief of the Braves. We had maybe two or three powwows every summer where sure. where the Braves would put on some type of a skit. I remember one year, it was at Bernie Kerman, I think, was we had this elaborate setup where Bernie was going to light a torch on the first island and walk in. There's a, <laughs> there's a sandbar from the first island to the waterfront shack. Okay. And it was dark as could be. And Bernie lit the torch, and he lost his way. <laughs> so all you could do is see this torch going lower and lower in the water. He finally found the sandbar again and made it. Made it. Everybody was laughing. And you know, it was a real serious moment. Sure, so. of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, you were chief of the Braves? No. I was, one year I think I was guardian of the fire. Mm. And one year I may have been medicine man. Gotcha. I think that year George Kerman was the chief. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. It's a, a little different now in the sense that only kids in cabin 14 can be officers. And you're only in 14 for your last year, which would have been your potential year then. Yeah. And so in those, in your day, though, anyone in 13 could be an officer. So you had the opportunity to be an officer more than once. Right. Very nice. So you go past your camper years, and now you're a counselor. Now, how long are you a regular counselor before you get to the waterfront check, sort of in the okay. living in the cabins? Um, my, let's see, 62, I was a junior counselor in cabin 10. I was only a junior counselor one year because I was already in college. Mm. So the next year, I was a counselor in cabin 7, which I think was probably my best cabin ever. And Lou Fletcher was my uh, co-counselor. Nice. And, and Louie was terrific. The only problem was he was a professional musician and, and <laughs> he had no idea what 12-year-olds were like. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, he expected when we had our song night, he expected them all to have absolutely perfect pitch. Sure. And and to obey him at all times. <laughs> and, you know, he had to learn how to, how to deal with kids, but he was a terrific guy. And Mike Bagan, was the junior counselor that wow, year? Wow, what a stacked staff! It was a, it was <laughs> we had a, it was as I said, it was probably the best cabin I had ever been in. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then the next year, which is '64, I was in, I was a counselor in '13, '64, '5, '6, and I think '67, I was a waterfront director and a counselor in cabin '13, mm. which was tough. Yeah. That's, that ends up being a lot of work. Uh, yeah, I thought it would. I thought I could do it sure. without much trouble. It turned out to be a much bigger job, and part of it was my co-waterfront director was probably had the. He was probably at the same childish level as somebody in cabin one. <laughs> <laughs> my, my good friend Harry Arkey. <laughs> that is uh, that so, is not helpful. So I had to be responsible for him too. Sure. Even though we had a great time, he was. He was dangerous out there. <laughs> uh, now, I've, there's a couple of stories that float around about Harry Arkey. Is that correct? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't remember a lot of them. I remember one 
which I'm not sure we can tell, but um, <laughs> Harry, Harry had a spouse with him. And oh, like at camp. At camp. Oh, that's it, pretty unusual. Back it then. was. Yeah. It, it may have been the first time. Uh, sometimes a woodshop guy would have a wife, but um, Harry had his wife with him, and they, I think they stayed in the counselor's lodge. I'm not sure. He may. They may have been down in the waterfront shack. Okay. Um, and she was um, a most interesting person. Yeah. <laughs> and. and she did some strange things. She just, I don't know that she liked being here a whole uh. lot. And at the end of the season, Al uh, was saying uh, his goodbyes to everybody in the mess hall. Because in those days, everybody ate at the same time. And, sure. Um, and Al was famous for not remembering names. Um, so as Al was saying, I guess they were leaving a day early. So Al was saying his goodbyes and thank yous and he thanked Harry. And then he said, and I want to thank his lovely wife, Sherman. And that wasn't her name. And her name was Sherry. <laughs> and I think I fell on the floor because <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that that was not unintentional. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I... Talked to Al about it later, and he just smiled. <laughs> but um, it was th that was the kind of year it was with them. Wow! So I I remember that, and I'm sure everybody at camp probably oh. remembered that <laughs> statement too. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, those days that Al has an underrated sense of humor. I think you know. Um, Al was the best. Um, you know, I th the years you talk about fifty five to seventy. We were really fortunate because we got to meet a lot of the campers who started camp. They mm. would come up as the old timers. Oh, sure, of the course. The guys who were yeah. starting here in 1928, 1930. And um, because of my position as a cabin 13 counselor and waterfront director, I, I really got to see Al in every capacity. Yeah. I saw him as a camper. I saw him literally every night at camp as he walked through mm. cabin 13. Um, I don't know if anybody has told you the, that part, but every Al would walk around the campground every night to say goodnight after um, after taps. Sure. He would walk, you know, okay, you could hear him all over the campus. Cabin one, all in, all in, Al. Good night, boys. Good night, Al. And then when he would come to cabin thirteen, he would we would have a meeting every night on the porch, which I don't think it's all glassed in now, but yeah. it was an open porch. And Al would stop through every single night and just talk. Hmm. Some days he had messages that he wanted to deliver to the oldest kids. And other days he would just tell stories. Hmm. And it was really fascinating to watch how he interacted with people. It, you know, taught me a lot. Yeah. And I, I really loved that part of camp. I mean, I knew I liked Al a lot when I was a kid. But when I was on the staff and I was, you know, really working for him, it was a totally different experience. And, you know, I wish I remembered any of the stories. But sure, of course. Some days they would be serious. Some days he would just go on and on and tell stories. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and then when I became waterfront director, my relationship changed again because now I've got the most responsible job in camp. Mm -hmm. Somebody gets hurt down there. 
it could be the end of camp. Right, absolutely. And, absolutely. and you know, he was, he trusted me, but he was always there, <laughs> making sure. <laughs> yeah. And we had a lot of good talks. And I, I really, I think that was the best part of camp was my experience with Al. Hmm. And in the early days with Sid Novak, who was the head director, the uh, program director in yeah. those days, head counselor, because uh, he was my favorite. Now, tell me a little bit about Pearl. I mean, you've talked about Al. Tell me a little about Pearl. Pearl was um, a special person. Um, we got along, you know, the group of guys who were campers and became counselors could get away with just about anything. <laughs> I, I mean, for example, before I tell you about Pearl, when we were junior counselors, we waited tables. And when you walked in the kitchen, you were told at the beginning of the year never to say anything, don't talk to Katie. Mm. And, you know, it was run like a military operation in there. And the guys I became junior counselors with didn't follow that rule. Oh, you know, Yogi Rustin used to come in and he used to bang the pots and pans over her head. And, and she fell in love with us. Hmm. We could do no wrong with her. And we used to come one year, we came up in the winter and she cooked for us. Wow. And we used to come up pre-camp a week before to help set up camp. And she would make us whatever she was. She loved us. Nice. So we had a great time with Katie. And Pearl, you know, Pearl was Pearl. Um, she was... Um, she was very demanding of everybody, but, you know, she cared a lot. Mm. And, uh, the only real, <laughs> I remember one time with Pearl, the first, it was one year I was waterfront director and I had 19 straight days without a break. And we, we started every morning with dipper shower at seven thirty. Sure. Of course. And every night we had a late night swim. So I was literally working from seven thirty in the morning till 10 at night. And one day I was sitting at the white bench by the tree, and I said, uh, Pearl, I need a break. And she lit into me like there was no tomorrow. <laughs> said, just kidding, Pearl, just kidding. But, you know, she spent her time with the, with the drama mm -hmm. and the end man routine, which I don't think exists anymore. Uh, only, well, we've, it's, it has lasted most all the way through uh, just this year at the Lou in revamping the Jubilee changed it significantly. But prior to this year, the in-men is in the six people doing the hand routine has still continued okay. on. There but, are elements obviously that changed over yeah. the years, but that was a big deal for Pearl. And we used to practice all day for five days because mm. we had to be perfect. Sure. And she was a tough taskmaster when it came <laughs> to that. But she left us alone, you know, in the camp stuff, running. You know, she never was that involved. She stayed out of the picture. Mm. Um, but she was around. You knew, you know, you knew what she liked and you knew what she didn't like. Yeah. And But Al was the guy that we went to. And then, you know, in later years, Mickey was um, taking more and more of the reins. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned the drama. Uh, one thing I always talk about with guys is as much as we're a sports camp, and everyone knows we're a big athletic competitive sports camp, that the stage has always been a big part of Ojibwe too. things that have happened in the rec hall. Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of things that went on in the rec hall. There would be um, talent nights. Um, I remember uh, George Kerman and Howie Miller, and there was a third guy, that, oh, Ricky Canoff. 
mm. who was a fabulous sax player. And, you know, they would put on a, a, a show. They were a great band. And they would play for a half hour, and everybody would, you know, oh, wow. sit in there and just absolutely loved them. We had, so we had talent nights. We had cabin song nights. We had a cabin stunt night, I think. The, the, uh, we had the minstrel show, which was a big deal. Sure. And it was a big deal in those days to make the chorus. Mm. I, I, I was in the chorus four or five years, and then I was an end man for I don't know how long. Hmm. And, and that was a big deal. And the end men all had lines. It was really like a minstrel show in those days. Right. Pearl stopped that. Um, appropriately. Yes, certainly. Uh, the minstrel shows, we've talked about it quite a bit on here, but, um, you know, it is what it is, but it belongs in its place in a museum somewhere. But it was, we, yeah. pr- we probably did it a few years longer than we should have. Maybe. No question. But uh, um, but in general, that is, that, that's time gone by. And then the Jubilee changed significantly. And after that, they put on great shows. Uh, they were different. It was a different kind of a show. But um, Yeah, my first year in the chorus, uh, H. Re- H. Reed Harris, Turtle. Mm. He has since become H. Reed. Um, Turtle was the music director. I don't think he could sing. <laughs> but, but he was very good at getting us kids to learn 26 songs in a week. Well, there you go. <laughs> and it was a tough week because we'd play ball and then we'd run into the mess hall every free moment to, or not the mess hall, the rec hall, for yeah. every free moment to learn how to do all the songs and to do them right. I remember one year when I was a counselor, we had a barbershop quartet. Oh, wow. Sandy Maravitz and I, and I don't remember who the other two people were. We had to spend the week learning harmony and weren't very good at it. Wow. But we, we pulled it off at the show. That's fantastic. So, yeah, that, that I always ask people about that because those are the places, you know, when we're known as a sports camp, when we're known as a competitive camp, the thing, I came in as a theater guy. And the thing I love is that it's a sports camp, but it's a sports camp that, offers a safe place for a guy who's just a jock, quote-unquote jock, to get up on stage and just try something and try to be funny and, and just and not get insulted for it or picked on for it. it in, in fact, get encouraged to do it. Yeah, we never, never really experienced any of that. The only time people took a beating at camp was when they were sort of jerks. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, most of my friends at camp were not what I would consider great athletes by any stretch of the imagination sure you know, they tried they weren't they weren't that good but nobody really cared right you know we right. played ball and said you know good game and went on to the next game it wasn't it wasn't the big deal yeah it's one of the beautiful parts about camp so another thing that you got to experience that <clears throat> not everyone does but i think is fantastic is you would live on to see your son come to camp right so tell me about that process a little bit both you're choosing did he have a choice on where he was going to go to camp? Um, he, yeah, he did. <laughs> um, David, David was not much of a team sport guy. He's a good athlete, but um, I wasn't sure. I wasn't pushing him. Mm. And my wife absolutely did not want him to go here. Okay. Because she had heard all the rumors about a sports camp and how competitive it is. Sure, of course. She went to a you know girls' camp where you pick daisies, I think. <laughs> <laughs> for, eight, for eight weeks. So then he came to our house, and he was terrific. Mm. I mean, I just sat back. I, I I really didn't want to push David here. I wasn't sure if he would like it as much as I did. Sure. Um, so I stayed back, and Alice and my wife 
absolutely did not want to send him here, but fell in love with Denny. Hmm. She just loved his pitch, and uh, David liked it. We've talked, I think, to a couple other camps. Yeah. And David really wanted to go here, so we let him go. That's great. And um, he just obviously loved it. He went for a long time as a camper and counselor and waterfront director, and now he's back as a camp doctor yeah. every year. Well, he's a good kid, even though he's not a kid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to your day, you talked about now you're on your staff years. Um, another big aspect of camp, of course, in those days, as much as any, is what happens after the day is done here at camp and what might happen in town and going out, um, maybe going to different places and having different types of beverages or whatnot. Yeah, um, the, there wasn't a lot of options in those days. Sure. And there were certain places that we sort of stayed away from because hmm. there was still a fair amount of anti-Semitism sure, in Eagle River. Um, and we would find a bar. There was one bar that we sort of found in the basement of the Vilas Theater um, <laughs> where the bowling alley, I don't know if the bowling alley is still there. No, the bowling alley has moved, but it, it used to be right there yeah, too, the, right? All the, of it was together. The bowling alley was in the basement, and it was really tough watching a movie because every time you get to a key part in the movie, somebody would throw, a, you could hear the ball rolling down the lane and hitting the pins. But there was a little bar there and a piano. Mm. So the bartender, I remember his name was Floyd Climey, and he never carded anybody. And the piano, Louis, Louis Mager would sit down and he'd play the piano. Nice. And we just, you know, and there was a pinball machine. And I remember once Steve Lewis... Uh, uh, he decided we, you know, they had shorty beers. I think shorties, you could get drunk on a dollar. I remember that. I mean, I don't remember <laughs> if the the beers were five cents or fifteen, but it didn't take long to get really drunk. Yeah. And Steve decided that he really wanted the bowling pin, the red bowling pin. Okay. So he took it. And then, and the next morning, I got a call from Floyd at camp here. Oh, and he said, Marty, could you, you know, could you please have Steve return the bowling pin? <laughs> <laughs> so we had to bring it back. That's fantastic. <laughs> Where were the other places to go? Now, I mean, um, that was the big one. That was, <clears throat> I mean, you know, we, we'd have pizza at White Spruce. Okay. Art Brunetta made the best pizza in the world. And except he would drink. So you never knew how late he was staying open. <laughs> there, there were nights where we'd get there at 9 o'clock and it was close. <laughs> That's funny. So uh, And we, you had Zimpleman's. Zimpleman's and... was there. And every once in a while, I got to be fairly friendly with Carl Zimpleman mm -hmm. and uh, his wife Elaine. She was the taskmaster there. Um, Carl was sort of a nice, easy-going guy with a bow tie and... Every once in a while, there was a bar around the corner, and I'd, I'd say, you know, I'd ask him if he wanted to go have a drink after he closed up, and he'd, he'd say, you know, if, if they see me in town at a bar, he said, I'm dead. Oh, wow. And so he said once in a while he'd go have a schnapps with me, but he was mm. pretty careful about how he was seen in town. Sure. That makes sense. And, the same, town, and yeah. the same thing was with Otto, our baker. Mm. Otto would never go into a bar. 
because he said all bakers have a reputation of being drunks, and if they ever see me in a bar, I'm finished. Wow. Huh. That's interesting. I've heard a lot about Otto over the years, but that's Otto was a very special guy. I mean, he he literally when he started working at camp, his fingers were crippled. He had arthritis. That's why he had a he had to uh, he had the bakery in town. Right. His sister Catherine. And he had to stop working because his arthritis was so bad. And Al just asked him one day if he would like to work two months a year. Hmm. And he jumped at the chance. And, you know, they built the, the whole bakery was rebuilt six inches higher because Otto was about six, 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 eight. Oh, wow. So that way he didn't have to bend down. Yeah. And at the end of the year, you couldn't shake hands with him because his hands hurt so much. Hmm. But he was a just a wonderful guy. Oh, that's fantastic, and I've I've had the opportunity to have some bow ties made from his recipes. Oh yeah, and uh, that's as close as I'm ever going to get. But they're pretty delicious. <laughs> yeah, I, I once asked him for his recipe for challah, and he said, "Well, I can give it to you, but it you know I make it for 400 people." <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's real tough to cut down <laughs> to one. Right. Before I wrap up, I always say, "Tell me a couple of really great camp stories." Well, I just. I just remembered one when I was outside, and it's a classic Ojibwa story. Um, we used to have intercamp competition, and our primary competition in those days was Camp Interlaken, which Irv Kupsenet's brother ran. And um, one year, I, I was in Cabin 13, we were playing their oldest guys, and we were on the main campus, and we were getting killed. And I, I mean, we were really good, and we were getting killed. And the umpire was Herbie Hoffman. And it was like the seventh inning, and we're down eight runs. <laughs> and Herbie Hoffman says, let me look at that ball. And he looks at the ball and says, this ball's no good anymore. Get me a new ball. So, <laughs> Camp Interlochen's screaming, and he said, no, no, it's perfectly fine, I can do it. And so they bring in a brand new ball, and we score about 12 runs. <laughs> and I could see Al, I mean, it was, it was classic Camp Ojibwe. I could just see Al sitting out there at the white benches, watching the game, <laughs> and smiling because we didn't lose. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it was... uh, But Camp Interlaken was very mad at us after that. I don't know if they ever played us again. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Well, what about his waterfront director? Uh, Waterfront tends to be a place where some weird things happen, both good and bad. Um, Yeah, you know, I I was thinking about that. We really didn't have any bad problems. I remember one day some counselor was chasing, I think, Mark X down the down the uh, the uh, pier on a, you know during rest period and he he went off the pier and cut his knee on the uh, on the ladder mm. and Al got really mad at me because I wasn't there sure of course but other than I was out getting gas actually other than that um, we the biggest thing about the waterfront was that when I took it over, it had been formerly run by Henry Baum, mm. Al's friend. Reti- he was retired, a retired electrician. And Henry um, believed in safety at all times. 
So the waterfront was never used. <laughs> he wouldn't let anybody go on the boat. He wouldn't let anybody go on the canoe until sure. they, you know, he had a series of steps. First, you had mm-hmm. to pass the four pier tests. You know, you had to swim back and forth four times. Mm-hmm. And then you had to pass the rowboat test. And then you had to pass the canoe test. And he just wouldn't let anybody do anything. Mm-hmm. So the waterfront really sort of came into disuse. And when I took over, I said to Alan Mickey and Denny, I guess, at the time that, or Denny wasn't there that year. That was George Sachs. I said, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm going to take it over, we're going to use it. And I don't believe in making a kid learn how to get into a rowboat and learn how to be proficient because he's not going to do it when he wants to learn how to ski. Right. So, right. so the rules changed, and I basically said that the kids can learn... I'm going to teach them everything, mm-hmm. but if they want to learn how to ski before they learn how to go in a canoe, it's okay with me. And the waterfront, and I also opened up the waterfront for all the activities. So during free swim, I don't even know if you have that anymore. Mm, but rarely, nothing. We don't have a regular free swim. We had two free swims a day: one after the first activity in the morning, one after the activity in the afternoon. Mm. Kids would come down to the waterfront. And I would run the ski boats all during free swim. Kids would just get in line and how many ever, you know, however many people wanted to get out, we'd take out. Nice. And if they wanted to go sailing, you know, we we ran the program for the kids mm. and the kids enjoyed it. And, we, and I also think they learned how to swim better because they were more interested in doing things. Sure. And we would play games down there. You know, the counselors would throw balls at the kids going off the slides. We had one game, I don't know if you still do, where counselor would throw a ball to a kid jumping off the diving board mm-hmm. who would then... Th- no, it was the other way around. I think they'd throw the ball to the kid coming down the slide who would throw the ball to a kid coming off the diving board who would then try and throw the ball to a kid jumping off the high dive. He had to be the other way around because there there weren't enough lefties. Right. I think you start at the high dive, right? You throw out to the high dive, then into the to the low board. I'm sure we did it every different way we could think of, (laughs) but it was the only way I could figure out how to keep the counselors uh, watching the kids. Sure. Otherwise, they'd be talking to each other and not watching the water. And you know, the the water there is dangerous because you can't see. Right. So even with 10 or 11 lifeguards that are free swim, it was a little dicey. Yeah. So that was one of the things that I used to do to keep the lifeguards engaged. Mm. Um, And then toward the end of the career, you know, boats started coming around. The lake got busier. In the early days, nobody, the only other people were back here were fishermen. Right. And the as things went on, more and more speedboats populated the lake, and it became more and more dangerous. Yeah, so, we, we've talked about it. It's come up more than once about the island swims, the one island, the two island, three island. Yeah. And, and basically we stopped mostly just because there was traffic on the lake and you right. couldn't have as much free rain as we used to. Well, we used to have rowboats go with the kids, but it's the problem was that the people who ran the rowboat, ran the speedboats were more careless, I think. Yeah. In fact, it got to a point where when I would send out a sailing uh, group, I would always have a chase boat out there. Mm. And once in a while, you know, we'd get some smart alecks. 
but we had the Donzi. Mike Bagan's boat was here. Sure. That boat would go about 36. It would beat anything on the lake. Nice. So people sort of realized that they they couldn't get too far. <laughs> so I always like to wrap up with one final question. Um, now that you're a grown-up, years past can. Um, how has your life been affected by your time at Ojibwa? Um, well, the easy way to answer that is almost all of my friends today were the friends I made at camp 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. We've, we've stayed together. Gary Greenberg, um, Steve Lewis. Uh, I'm sure I could, you know, I'm missing 10 people. Sure, of course. Um, but we really developed great friendships. That's what I think was the most important thing that camp does for you is, is allow you to have friendships. It, it also did one other thing, and that was when you went to college, it was pretty easy because it wasn't mm. the first time that you were living with a diverse group of people that you had to get along with. You learned that at camp yeah, pretty makes, quickly. Yeah. And, you know, I got, I had, for the most part, really great counselors. I had one counselor that, you know, they, they switched him after four weeks. He was more interested in playing basketball than doing anything. But um, for the most part, I mean, I, I remember all my counselors, mm. and they were terrific, and they all taught me something. So that's, that's what I liked about camp. And I think most people will probably say the same thing. I don't think it's winning Watermelon League or, you know, my, my really my only real memory of all the sports is the first year I was here was the first year of Peach League. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, I I didn't bring up a mitt because I didn't know that. Right. So I played Peach League without a mitt. (laughs) I may be the only person ever to do it. And I played first base. Oh. And uh, Jerry Nussbaum was my coach, and his brother Bob Nussbaum was up here, and he was a lefty. So Bob would give me his mitt, and I didn't know how to use it. Mm. So I was much better playing barehanded than playing uh, with a mitt. Yeah. And we, I think we're 14-2 and two during the season. And the team we played in the finals was the team we lost both games to. And in the final game, we killed them. Nice. And, and that was my, you know, my big sports memory from camp was the first year I was here. Yeah. And I, Ian Sachs, George's brother, was on my team. George, Ian was in cabin two, I think. Mm. We had a, you know, I, I don't remember very much about it. I remember Jeff Marks jumping on my foot at first base. <laughs> <laughs> he thought, uh, you know, I thought that was permissible. Sure. Well, playing barehanded was fine, but the stepping on the foot, yeah, that's... <laughs> that one. And then he tried it again the second time, but I pulled my leg off, and he just absolutely killed himself <laughs> landing on the hard base. That's great. And I remember hitting a lot of balls in the woods because I was a big hitter Nice. in those days. My friend Steve Lewis said I hit my peak when I was 12. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Isn't it true for all of us? Well, Marty, I can't thank you enough for sitting down with me. This was great. Good. And uh, thanks for coming, and I hope you enjoy your time here at camp. Thanks, I do. I enjoy it a lot. Awesome. Okay, that is it. Marty Salzman. 
right here on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. How about that? Great time. And of course, uh, stay tuned later this week. A special holiday edition, Thursday. David Salzman will be right here on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Don't miss it. You're going to love that episode too. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampoJibbaHistory.org, or just swing by the website. I know I said just last week that I was not going to talk about the weather anymore. I, I, I know I said that. I put it out there. I said, you know, my daddy always told me people who talk about the weather don't have anything better to talk about. And that is true. But, oh boy, is it cold. Okay. <laughs> That's it. I won't say anything else. Have a great week. We'll see you on Thursday. I'm going outside in my snowshoes to have a cigar.